Hola, Darrell. Miss Ashley. <laughs> How you doing? Um. Well, I'm on my health kick. You are. Doing this ginger root uh, uh, energy cold press shot. You have. You've been working on the ginger for a couple of days. I'd say we eat pretty healthy overall, though. But yeah, you are on a kick with ginger. I'm on a ginger kick. <laughs> It's the Our Outside Podcast from the Minority Outdoor Alliance. I'm Ashley Smith. And I'm Darrell Smith. What is the Our Outside Podcast? What do we value as individuals? And what do we value as an organization? We ask ourselves that as your host and the founders of the nonprofit, the Minority Outdoor Alliance. We actually ask ourselves a number of key questions that we think may give our growing audience context and clarity on what it means to bring the unlikely to the outdoors, while simultaneously defining what the active sporting outdoors is. Throughout the episodes, we hope to give you a glimpse into our future plans and initiatives to continue creating conversations that will lead to more diversity, equity, and inclusion in the active outdoors and encourage more communities of color to participate in the conversation of land and water conservation. So join us. Um, Darrell recorded a fantastic episode that we have coming up here, and we're just going to just chit-chat about some high points here. Um, Darrell, why don't you talk a little bit about the guest, um, and then I wanted to ask you a few questions. Well, our guest is Brianna Bashford of the Georgia Wildlife Federation. She is the R3 coordinator among a, a resume of other different things. Pause. R3 for those who may not know. Uh, recruit, retain, and reactivate. Yeah. We are, it's a model that is very popular um, in hunting and fishing circles. Yeah. I think most people know, but just for anybody who. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I anticipate there's there. a handful of people that just may not. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, so she is the R3 coordinator. Yes, she is the R3 coordinator. And, um, she, I met her going to a Georgia Wildlife Federation, uh, banquet. Oh yeah. Yeah. That one. And the Georgia Wildlife Federation CEO, uh, Mike Worley invited me and I was able to speak with Brianna, um, pretty extensively there And she is actually who we will be working with directly um, for Minority Outdoor Alliance as we uh, work on forging this partnership with Georgia Wildlife Federation. I think it'd be a great asset um, to our organization. And and I feel like they feel the same about us. Good. Well, alignment and synergy is always a good thing. Mm hmm. Well, before we jump into the episode, I definitely want to follow up on a couple of promises that we made um, in our introduction, our introductory episode, and that is to discuss exactly what conservation is. You know, I think 
um, colloquially and within culture and politics and all that is that we can throw around words a lot and not necessarily sit down like we're in the sixth grade and talk about what is what is what is this thing? What is conservation? So um, I know we said we we're going to talk about the different pillars of con- con- conservation and the different models of conservation. We have some really fire episodes coming up with some experts on different things. Um, but I thought it would be really dope to just start with what is conservation? So when you think about conservation, I'm sure many different things come to mind. But I think the best thing to do is to just break it down and let's just let's just take like I said, let's take it back to sixth grade and talk about exactly what it is. So um conservation is the prevention of decay, waste, or loss. It is um, the careful utilization of natural resources in order to prevent depletion. Now, when you think about that, I um a a thought that comes to mind to me when we talk about conservation is I don't think people really think about it as an immediate need. Like I think people hear things and they know we need to do better, but I'm not sure that people truly understand how we have a window of time. <laughs> yeah, to we do. Really begin to take care of the planet in a better way. Mm-hmm. And you know how, like, you know how, like, um, when you're growing up as a teenager or whatever, or how you can be, like, just, I don't know, maybe your room's not the cleanest and you're like a teenager and you just keep walking over it and just waking up mm-hmm. and just going to bed and waking up and so your mom and dad just get on you or however the cycle ends. Right. We have to be our own mom and dad in that situation. We can't keep walking over our mess and pretending that it's not there. So what I'm hoping as we move forward with the education and understanding of what conservation is, is that we can truly start to really realize how like this is a now, this is a now assignment, this is a now thing, we have to do this right now. And if we think about all the resources that are available to us, Earth's natural resources from the air to the minerals, to the plants, the soil, the water, and the wildlife, there, because we coexist with nature, if we don't start doing a better job, then there will be consequences. And the thing is the way things work, you know, Maybe future generations, not maybe, future generations will definitely see the consequences of our actions right now. So we have to get to the point where we are very serious about the care and protection of our resources so that that they can persist for future generations. So that includes maintaining a diversity of species and genes and ecosystems, as 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 well as making sure that the environment is functioning um, nutrient cycling. I mean, there's just so many things that go into, we got to stop disrupting how nature works. Um, so I thought that was just kind of a good starting point as to what conservation is. Do you, what do you, what do you? Yeah. So I, I want to talk about conservation, specifically land and water, public lands and pu- public water Absolutely. Uh, conservation. And I want to frame it 
in a way that might not only express the importance, but make it relevant to us all. And there are a couple of key points, right? And this is just things that I I, I, I try to keep note at the forefront, just based off of a lot of reading research, stuff like that. But the, the couple of main points, you have to understand that our resources are number one, international, and they are held in a public trust. So what that they, they're international resources and they're held in a public trust. What that means, what that hopefully does is reinforce what you're saying, which is we need to be mom and pop over what it is that we have. Um, I truly feel spiritually that we've been given um, we've been given uh, the responsibility to maintain like we've been tasked with that. Given dominion. Given dominion, right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think that is dictated spiritually, yes, but we also have the added benefit of our, you know, federal government allowing us the responsibility um, publicly, right? Like that model of conservation is not the same everywhere in the world. Absolutely. And and it looks different for everybody. And and like I just got off a, a, an episode with Robbie Kroger. I know. It. Don't give it away too much. That I'm not. such a dope episode. But Darrell just did a really dope episode with a guy um, that is South African. Mm-hmm. And, their, origin, yeah, yeah. and their model of conservation is completely different in the, the, the thinking and the um, philosophy that goes behind it. Right. The, and so and that looks a lot different. And and as I tried to compare them. Um, Robbie told me basically they're apples and oranges. They're not the same and they benefit. Everybody's model benefits where they are in the world for whatever reason that they do. And so for us, it's the idea that we ho- we we all are responsible for these, the you know, lands and waters. Right. We got to clean up our share of the room. We have to clean up our share of the room. Right. And we have the, it's, it's like a, it's like a good, not chore. Like, I don't want to frame it like that, but it's a good thing to have to do, right. you know, um, is to be responsible for this because um, not everybody in the world can walk out and say it and look in a book, a regulations book and find out where to go hunt, where to go fish. And as long as you paid for the license and whatever other fees that go along with it and, you know, you're a decent upstanding, you know, citizen, you pay your taxes, you do all of that stuff. We mentioned that in this podcast. Um, it's a little deeper than that, but for the most part, as long as you do the bare bones basics, you don't have to ask anyone where to go hunt. You could just do it. You know, you don't have to ask anyone to go where to go fish. So where that, I guess, plays a larger role is if we don't have those resources, a couple of things will happen. Number one, they'll start putting parameters on a lot of these resources, which we don't necessarily want because we have the freedom to do so i understand game limits and things like that but you know there are extremes to both situations now the other part about it is you know once the resources are depleted then they fall into further private hands and they they become this thing this novelty thing right you see what I'm saying? It's it's less a lifestyle and more a novelty. And that's just my opinion. 
There's nothing wrong with private lands and, and the research that goes on it. But we have that as a privilege. And not as, you know, a restriction or an obligation. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I want to also make the link between conservation and hunting. I think um, you guys talk to talk about that a little. No, you guys touch on um, how hunting is a benefit. um, And I want to touch on that a little bit, too. Um, I also think while we're still in the kind of definition portion of everything, I want to talk about um, the difference between conservation and preservation. So conservation is similar to preservation. Uh, They're different. They both, you know, obviously it's about the protection of nature, but they're striving to accomplish that task in different ways. Conservation seeks the sustainable use of nature by humans for activities such as hunting, lodging, mining, um, any type of recreation. Um, while preservation means, okay, now we're just protecting this this from human use. Um, so a good illustration, we talked about public lands and public waters. And I, I want to put this out here because if, if, if you are newer, because if, if we're putting out information in this way, I want to make sure that we're always um, sharing the high points. Like as a taxpayer, you have access to so much land and so much water and like it's yours, right? And so the connection, one of, well, one of the connecting pieces, and I'll let you talk about this a little deeper, but one of the connecting pieces is like if we're all out there enjoying it, the natural thing that happens is that we all want to take care of it. Um. So if we think about like our national park system here in the United States and how we manage public lands, particularly with national parks, uh, national parks, I would put them more in the preservation category um, uh, because they, they're they more about an emphasis on causing minimal change to the landscape or environment. Um so that I would put them more in the preservation category. So it's just I wanted to kind of bifurcate and kind of divide up things because I know if you if you're not like looking at it with a fine tooth comb, conservation, preservation, climate change, it all kind of starts to come together and sound like mm-hmm. the same thing. So I think it's important to break it down and understand what it is we're talking about as far as conservation. So we're talking about the care and protection of resources so that they will be here for future generations. And we, you bring up the ugly four-letter word, climate change. Right. Right. And, you know, we have to understand that conservation is the thing that will get us to better practices that lead to, you know, affecting, positively affecting climate change. Like, those are the things that are going to get us there. Um Yeah. It's about developing a solution that is sustainable. We Absolutely. want to hunt, you know, we 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 have these, you know, inalienable rights, right? You hear you hear that in uh I guess legalese a lot. <laughs> right? And that's kind of one of those things. Well, we have to be able to sustain that. You know, you can't you can't overhunt, you can't not hunt. You know, there, there's a there's a management piece that goes into that. So 
you know, and, and preservation is good, but I like that you made it very clear that it's about, yeah, the difference between the two, like, you know, we want to be able to use it. Both have a role. Yeah. Both have a role. And, you know, at a point because humans have not learned on a macro level as a whole, how to effectively coexist, um, you know, there has to be a point where sometimes it's like, no, we got to put a stop to this. Right. But yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, so serve a purpose. Yeah. We, we have to put a stop to it, but we don't, we don't want there. There have been points where we we've had to put a stop to things. We don't want to get there. Right. And we will get there. If, if we don't yeah, put the brakes on. Put the brakes on and not focus on, you know, the right kinds of conservation. And but also we'll get there if we do not have more people in involved in in the outdoors. In the outdoors and, and in conservation. Specifically, you can have people involved in the outdoors, but to take it one step further, you want people to know more about conservation. When we think about the minority outdoor alliance festival. That was a thing that was lacking. It was like the moment that we said it, there was a resounding, well, what does that mean? I mean, like, yeah, people understand it on a very, like, loose level. Yeah. But I don't think there is enough conversation about conservation. So we are excited to, you know, push that con- that conversation for, you know, that's actually quite the tongue twister, by the way. Mm-hmm. I dare you, if you're by yourself, maybe in front of a friend, say conversation about conservation like five times fast. But anyway, um, yeah, so I, I'm really excited about uh, this this episode that's coming up here. Um, she she mentioned as the R3 coordinator that her goal is to increase participation, create and improve awareness and understanding about conservation. And um, she really wants people to understand the privilege that we have to access the systems um, of wildlife and systems of, of, of land that we do. It's a, it's, it really is. I think sometimes, um, like you said, the, the other episodes are, that are coming up and when you can hear about the other models of conservation around the world, it really will kind of hit you in the head like, wow, you don't really realize what a privilege it is to have access to as much land and water as as we do. It's, it really is. Um, and so I'm excited to hear hear this episode and I'm excited for the, the audience to hear it. So I say we get started if you don't have anything else to add. I got one more thing I want to get your thoughts on. Sure. Because we, we, we bring this up. You come from a family, both parents who went to HBCUs. Yes. Both parents. What's been your experience with bringing these conversations up? Like, I guess, what's your thoughts? What's your opinion about bringing these thoughts, programs, ideas, initiatives to historically black colleges and universities. Like I went to Albany state myself and I, I absolutely am thrilled about this kind of work because again, I, I, I may have been even been a little more focused in school had stuff like this been around. I'm, I'm just going to be completely frank with you. Um, you wouldn't have been driving up to the UGA party. I probably wouldn't have been driving up to the UGA st- party. Wait, don't lie to these people. You st- I would have been going you to the st- Warnell School st- of you Forestry. St- Goodbye. You st- <laughs> would have been driving all the way to Athens for the parties. But um, 
background for those of you who don't know, we've known each other a very long time. We weren't dating that long, but known each other for a long time. <laughs> he would pop up at my school, Go Dogs, uh, in Athens because he didn't have enough parties to attend at the Albany State University. But yeah, no, so I think that's a fantastic question. Um, and I actually, I'm glad you brought it up because when I was, uh, you know, when we were reviewing the episode, it's actually something that I thought about when she was talking about the Academics of Field program and her goal to create collegiate hunting communities. I cannot speak for HBCUs in particular because obviously I did not go to one. I can speak to it in the sense of obviously I know a lot of Black people and I know a lot of Black people who went to HBCUs and my whole family went to HBCUs. So I have that connection and I grew up on Spelman's campus and things of that nature, going to all the camps and doing all the things. Love Spelman. Um, so I can, I, I, I'd rather speak directly to my experience okay. and then kind of wrap back around to your question just mm-hmm. to have an authentic lens. So I went to the University of Georgia, go dogs. Um, unfortunately, we did just lose the SEC championship too soon. I know it is kind of soon for me to even be talking about it, but it <laughs> is what it is. Um, so other than a uh, great, great, a great football environment, because we do obviously have a great football program. We also have a lot of really other awesome programs that when um, my now husband, then fiance, I took him to UGA one time, I think maybe it was for homecoming. It was for homecoming. Yeah, yeah okay, it whatever. Was, it was homecoming. He was like floored as uh, an HBCU alum that we had a school of forestry. Mm-hmm. And I think it kind of even goes back to the con- the conversation we were having earlier about how you don't necessarily understand the privileges that you have when you're living in one kind of reality or one environment. Mm-hmm. Because honestly, and I'm being, I'm being completely honest here, I knew we had a school of forestry. I thought the building was cool. We had a lot of different really cool buildings, a lot of things going on. But it was just a part of my life. Like I knew we had it and it was cool. I didn't really think about it at the time as a college student about how this isn't of these courses and these schools weren't available on other campuses. I really, you know what I'm saying? So um, if I'm being honest, that's just, that's just, that was just my reality at the time. And I, you know, of course I, I graduated with the degree in journalism and Spanish. So I just also was just completely away from those schools. Um, but to wrap back around to your question about, you know, just what does that look like in an all black environment? Like not all black environment, but a historically a predominantly black environment. What do those conversations look like? I'm just speaking as a black woman who's grown up um, and very in a very awesome black community like i said while i didn't attend spelman i was there a lot i we didn't have the conversations that's just what it comes down to um there weren't necessarily conversations about conservation now i can remember being in school and being in grade school and we had like the you know save the planet days and you'd have to wear t-shirts and Mm -hmm. you know like little inklings here and there um, and, you know, recycling that was dropped into the conversation more as we got older, because I wouldn't I wouldn't say that when 
we were like our kids age or when we were younger that recycling was a huge conversation. I think that's grown throughout. I think we were aware of it. Oh, we were definitely aware of it, but it, it is, it is, it is now. But I think that conversation grew as we got older. Um, so speaking just from my experience, I don't think it's something that we discuss as a whole. I really don't. And so as far as its presence, at HBCUs, like I said, I didn't attend an HBCU, but obviously you're going to speak directly to that. I doubt that you guys had courses developed to uh, uh, devoted to conservation. No, we did. We did not have. This is the thing that that grinds my gears. Okay, we were in at Albany State University. We were in the heart of the red, almost the heart. I think Thomasville was the heart of Red Hills, but we were in pristine longleaf pine country we were in quail country we were in and around hunting a ton we were you know surrounded by plantations we were surrounded by outdoor activity we were surrounded we were off the flint river we had plenty of fishing right we had all of those things but Still, we did not have a wildlife, forestry, or conservation-focused program. And that, I think when we when I got to UGA, I think that's when it hit me and it baffled me. Mm-hmm. It was like kind of like, wait a minute. I remember exactly where, where you were like, what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was really cool, but it, it really just made me think, well, wait a minute. Why is this not? Because, you know, when we did, when, when we went, I was well into hunting and, 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 and outdoor activity. Like I was well ingrained in, in it by then, um, enough to recognize something like that. And I was just kind of like, hmm, that's interesting. Um, and I think some of that comes from, so, comes from the fact that so many of us as a culture have moved away from an outdoor lifestyle. You know, we've moved away from it. I can go all through history and stuff like that and talk about that. But we've got to understand and appreciate that, like, we are significant contributors historically to the outdoors. You know, significant contributors um, and stewards at that. So that was the thing that that made me want to ask, and I and we like I said we dive into this into the episode, and um, yeah, I'm just excited that there's actually some something being done to get more of us, more black and brown people, in these conversations. Yeah, and you know, and and why that matters. I know we touched on this a bit in the introductory episode that diversity, equity, and inclusion matters matters in every space. Uh, but why does it matter specifically for the space that we are in when it comes to the outdoors and conservation? I know we touched on this earlier, but if we truly are to tackle such a large project as in conserving our world, then we need as many solutions, as many minds, and as many hands Um, that we can possibly have access to. And we do that by including everyone in the conversation. 
And the other important part about including everyone in the conversation is that we will we will inherently leave blind spots to planning and legislation and any type of action we take if everyone's not included. So that's how, you know, um, envir- environmental injustices happen because there aren't minds at the table, there aren't stakeholders in every community present when the legislation is being created and when the conversations are being had. So if we're serious about making the world a better place, if we're serious about protecting our natural resources so that future generations can enjoy them, then we have to get serious about inclusion. Um, So I, I honestly think that this is a call to humanity at this intersection at this time, at this time in history, in this zeitgeist. I don't, I don't think, I don't think it lightly that we are being pushed to be more inclusive at a time where the biggest project of our lives is in front of us. And that is taking care of our world. Because truly getting this together, truly cleaning up our room to just kind of think back to what I was saying earlier requires us to develop inclusive intelligence. We have to do it to be able to do it right. So it's no longer, you know, just something that we, obviously we just need to do it anyway. We just need to become better people and higher versions of humanity. That's always relevant. But now we have a unifying goal and that is to to conserve our world. So <clears throat> if you don't mind, I'm going to end with some research that will come further down the pipeline in, in these conversations, but it it uh, it will hopefully support, you know, exactly what you're saying. I got a piece of research that I, you know, been looking at. But when we talk about conservation and all of these things and climate change and, and, and getting people involved in the conversation, what that does or what we're doing and, and, and the frame of reference that I want to put people's minds in when we talk about diversity, right, in the outdoors. And, and you and I spoke about this before, looking at it as an ecological thing. Well, let's take it one more one step further. Let's look at diversity in the outdoors and, and, and the, the conversation, again, of converse, of conservation. We say that you got me. <laughs> so let's look at it as an observation of, you know, an entire ecosystem, right? Like a, a series of socioeconomic systems. Yeah. You know, um, and sociocultural systems, you know, that are existing in this, you know, this this world, this this place that we stay. And what we want to do is observe and, and create conversations, you know, and, and as it says here in this document, um, a complex set of interactions, you know, that exist between soci- sociocultural systems. So you got your your traditions, your philosophy, ethics, worldviews, and things like that. We want to bring all of that stuff to the forefront and and recognize these drivers, you know, that go on that, you know, affect the world that we live in. We have to understand that 
you know, habitat management and sustainability, that is a that's a, a it's an all encompassing thing. There are a bunch of different ideas. There are a bunch of different people. There are different groups. There are different initiatives. They all come together for the greater good of, again, conservation and, and furthermore, climate change. What we're trying to do is observe the people um, and the efforts and the initiatives that are going in to do this. Um, and what I like about this is it, it takes it takes it out of just the spectrum of, oh, those are outdoors people. They do what they do. And it hopefully makes all of this much more relatable to those the who are larger. The, those are who are unlikely. Right. Like, Absolutely. right. Yeah. Hopefully what we're doing is examining these systems. Right. And, and, and showing people that, look, you don't have to be, you know, champion wild game hunter that goes on African safaris and stuff like that. No, man, like conservation happens in your backyard. Absolutely. You know, and it happens the way that, you know, that is that that is going to affect your space. Like you act on these things when it when it touches your space, when it directly affects you. I think some of the things and some of the issues that we're having is, you know, from one side of the country to the other, we don't necessarily understand each other's traditions and regions and and. and cultures and attitudes and things like that. So how do we communicate something that is important to us, to people that is otherwise not important or they just don't know? Yeah. And, and you know, that's what this is all about for sure. And I think that's what it comes down to in kind of what we were discussing earlier. There is not enough urgency behind understanding how important this is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. King had a phrase called the fierce urgency of now. There is a fierce urgency to us understanding that because we are the humans that are alive right now in this timeline of history, that it is our job. It is our responsibility. It is our calling. It is our privilege. It is if you truly care about, you know, there being um, a sustainable and habitable planet for your descendants. If you care about those things, we have to get serious about it. Uh, so I'm hoping that all those all those different um, sectors and um, things that you discussed earlier, that people, there's really way more that unites us than divides us. But the reality of humanity is, is that um, we focus on the divisiveness and not even divisiveness in, in a negative way. Obviously, that happens too, but just for some reason we're prone and to think about what separates us and what makes us different. Okay. They're having wildfires over there, but psh, that doesn't affect me. Like, no, yes, it does. Like Dr. King, again, he's just coming up uh, mm -hmm. in my mind tonight, but you know, a threat to justice uh, in anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Like it's the same thing here. If, 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 if our lands and our waters are being threatened in this part of the globe or this part of the country, it is a problem. It is something that we all have to fix. So, um, you know, I think we just have, you know, like, like we said, an exciting episode coming up and we're excited to dive a little deeper on these different topics as we move forward. But we thank you guys for joining us and um, we look forward to a great episode. And 
and this is our outside podcast, uh, a Minority Outdoor Alliance podcast. And Brianna Bashford is our guest. Brianna, how's it going? It's going really well, Darrell. Thank you for inviting me. How are you doing? I'm cool. It's it's middle of the day. Um, you know this. You're here. The weather's dropped, and and uh, it's starting to feel like fall. Starting not well. Starting to feel like winter. Let me say it like that. Yeah, I hear you. I uh, turned up the heat and had some tea this morning, yeah. so I'm right there with you. You're right there. It's it's one of those days, and it because you're coming from Colorado, it does actually get cold. Not cold as y'all do. <laughs> Let me just say, there's a reason I moved south. <laughs> really? Yes. Okay. I I I don't. I don't like the cold, cold, and Georgia is still too cold for me. Let me oh, just say that. Hey, I understand. Well, you know, you got you can deal with gators down in Florida. It'll be it'll be warm though. That's that's true. I uh, I think this is a good this is a good <laughs> middle ground. I don't need them gators. <laughs> so I'm I'm just making sure. Well, I I I want to introduce you, you know, and and talk about what you do. So you are the R three coordinator of the Georgia Wildlife Federation. Yes. So it's it's complicated. I am the R3 coordinator for the state of Georgia. I am employed by the Georgia Wildlife Federation, but I'm also largely supported by the DNR Wildlife Resources Division, Safari Club International Georgia Chapter, National Wild Turkey Federation, <laughs> National Deer Alliance Association, and uh, did I say National Wild Turkey Federation? Uh huh. There's one more. Just, no, I think I got them all. You got them all. You, I mean, yeah. you just you just covered the whole the whole game. Yeah, okay. that's what's that's what's awesome is my role is to work with so many different organizations and to build a collective energy, a collective coalition, mm -hmm. so that we are working together towards common goals, leaning on each other to benefit ourselves and each other, not work in silos, mm -hmm. and impact and have greater change. Well, that that leads me to a couple of points, and, and really where I, I was, uh, I guess, going to send the direction of this conversation, um, it, it kind of lines up with, with uh, some conservation pillars that I kind of had in mind. So check this out. Everything that you just said goes into, you know, the seventh pillar of conservation where it talks about uh, the democracy of hunting and fishing and keeping uh, democratic principles and the government allocating, you know, access to wildlife without regard for wealth, prestige or land ownership. And like, that's the really dope thing that I like about what you're doing and what you're bringing to the table is like you're you're directly and indirectly you know addressing the democratic nature of what you know of, of getting people outside absolutely it's i've got two key goals as mm -hmm. the r3 coordinator mm -hmm. one is to increase participation in outdoor recreation hunting fishing and shooting sports mm -hmm. the second goal is to create and improve awareness and understanding of conservation and of these, you know, the, the democratic principles that you just alluded to and how 
are we as Americans so fortunate to have access to the wildlife system and conservation system and the wild places that we do? Mm-hmm. Well, and that it, it's funny. You, you, we talk about like the North American model of conservation, right? This this thing that's so unique to us and in the entire world. Like, there's nowhere else in the world that just that can give you access to public land like we have here in North America. Absolutely. I have had different experiences. Uh, personally, I spent some time in New Zealand a couple mm-hmm. years ago. What was that like? It, oh, incredible. Okay. Um, it was beautiful. But their access, the public's access to land was restricted because of how limited they were on land. Uh, but also because of ownership rules and regulations. Mm -hmm. So we couldn't just go out into the woods and disperse camp. Mm -hmm. You had to reserve a spot just Mm -hmm. like you do at an established campground um, for all camping needs. Mm -hmm. So even a beautiful outdoor place like New Zealand, this hub for recreation, doesn't have the same opportunities that we have here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Another really neat example is I had an individual engaged in our Academics of Field program. Mm -hmm. She is a graduate student at UGA, and she's from Brazil. And they they don't have access to guns and firearms, and they don't have access to hunting. And so because of that, their entire perspective of Mm -hmm. hunting is completely different from our perspective. Okay, what's it like for them? Even the biologists, even the state agency personnel that are managing the outdoors view hunting, they don't understand the use, Mm -hmm. the need, the benefits, and so they have a a negative perspective. I don't know. I don't want to put words in their mouths. Um, But that's the general. Okay. General sentiment. Gotcha. Yes, even from like the scientific community. And so her coming out here and participating in our academics of field program is completely foreign and a whole new experience and a new way for her to engage with the wildlife and engage with the outdoors. That just like you said, there's nowhere else in the world that we get that opportunity. Right, right. Wow. Well, that's that's crazy. And and I just... You know, I, I'm glad that you're you you've been able to have those experiences, and and you know, it's one thing to want to get people outdoors and 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 get them to talking about conservation and you know enjoying public spaces, but like you've seen it other places in the in the world, so I think that lends itself to you being able to really speak to, you know, hey, look, like these are lands we got to take care of them, but we got to we have to get people out, you know, engaged, you know, with them too. Absolutely. I, my background, I got my degree in wildlife biology Mm -hmm. um, with an emphasis on outreach and a biologist and a state agency can be science focused and be strict to that, but truly successful wildlife management Mm -hmm. and conservation efforts are 
most successful with strong partnerships with the human component as well. Right. right. You, you know, we, we live out there just as much and our livelihoods are impacted by the wildlife just as much. And we benefit from the wildlife just as much. And so you have to think about that other component when you are managing wildlife and wild species. Yep. Yep. Lands. Well, so thinking about that component, how do you communicate that, you know, in your academics of field program? Like I, and I want to get into that, like that, that actual program, because that's actually something that, you know, you and I have been talking about working together on. Um, so how do you weave that into that program? You know, I think that it really starts with a common ground. And um, when you're reaching all individuals from different backgrounds and you're trying to convey a new concept, a new subject, you're trying to market and sell an idea. Mm -hmm. That's what education is, is you've got to captivate them and you need to understand your audience. And the most success that I have when I'm doing outreach for hunting in particular is finding that common ground of, hey, in the early 1900s, hunters saw a decline in wildlife species and acted and did something about it. They lobbied to the federal government to ban market hunting. They established state agencies, if those weren't already present, Mm -hmm. which created laws and regulations Mm -hmm. to define poaching and establish responsible legal harvest. Mm So I think when we we touch on that common ground that everyone can appreciate, it makes it easier to introduce the concept and to dig into the details of how hunting in particular can be a benefit. So uh, forgive me, I'll backtrack and give a real quick, like, what is Academics of Field? So Academics of Field is a, a program that strives to build collegiate hunting communities. What I mean by that is we want to recruit individuals from non-traditional backgrounds into hunting and shooting sports. And I define a non-traditional background in this context as someone that didn't grow up hunting, fishing, or shooting because they're often urban. They're frequently females. They could have, you know, different different backgrounds, ethnicities, race, so on and so forth. Um, and so the goal is to introduce people of non-traditional backgrounds to the activity yep. and do it in a way where they receive a, a quality education on the history of hunting, uh, quality education on how to use the tools, so their firearms, And then also to ensure when they're out in the field implementing these activities, they do it in a positive way and have a comfortable experience um, and a comfortable opportunity to try new things. Right. That's, I mean, that's, that really plays into the college experience, doesn't it? Like, (laughs) I mean, because that's what that's, and I think that's the, the appeal you talk about, you know, meeting people, Essentially, in this, we have this thing in education. Being a teacher, and and you know this, meeting it's called meeting people where they at, and that's exactly you know what you're doing with that academics of field program. So let let's talk about how you got you know what schools and universities you know 
you're working with. And, and of course we got to throw in Albany state. I'm going to just spill the beans there, but. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, So academics of field really kicked off in 2019. So we've had a phenomenal expansion over the last three years. Uh, So in Georgia, we currently have active programs at UGA, Georgia Southern and ABAC. We also have expanded outside of Georgia, which is really excited. We've partnered with a variety of different NGOs and have programs all across the Southeast. And then what you t- what you alluded to, Darrell, is next year we are going to be establishing programs at HBCUs across the Southeast. And in Georgia specifically, we will be working with Albany State University and Fort Valley State University. And I am just beyond excited for the opportunity to to share something that's really important to me and really tugs at my heartstrings with new individuals that may have never been exposed to these activities before. Yep. Yep. Well, and that's, see, that's the thing that I really, I'm really thrilled about, um, you know, with it being at HBCUs. I mean, you know, I was there and, and I hunt down there now, you know, I hunt, you know, around Albany, I hunt, you know, around Thomasville in that area. And there was nothing like that then, you know, like that pro and I wish there was like, I didn't have an appreciation for quail country until I left Albany state, you know, and it was just because of a lack of awareness of what was around me and what I had and what there was to appreciate. Like, and, and from what I understand, I, I, I might've heard a couple of times that, you know, 2012 wasn't a bad year for quail down there anyway so you know yeah (laughs) I I'm with you with that I I didn't learn Mm -hmm. how to hunt until I was an adult so cutting edge research by some of the brightest scientific minds is conducted daily in their state-of-the-art pet health and nutrition center dog food trends come and go but for a half a century, Yukonuba has focused on next level quality driven by science. Add in relationships with top trainers, breeders, and industry partners, and the extraordinary potential inside every dog is unleashed. At Yukonuba, we put your dog's health and performance first. Learn more at www.yukonubasportingdog.com. My background, I grew up in Colorado. I grew up on the front range Mm -hmm. of a suburb of Denver. And fortunately, my parents were were able to own an acre up in the mountains. And that's where we went for our day trips. And it was it was nothing elaborate. We didn't really camp. You know, we never really fished. We just did little short hikes and enjoyed sitting outside listening to the birds and the hummingbirds and um, occasionally see a couple deer walk around. And and that's when I fell in love. And what the experience that really drove me to follow the career that I that I have. But I, it wasn't until I was in college and I met my now husband who taught me how to go camping mm-hmm. and taught me how to light a fire. How many people know how to do that? How many women 
have been empowered to learn how to make a fire. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and that's, it is not that simple to make a fire. Like literally. <laughs> it's so hard. It's so hard. Uh, For some like, reason, it is the hardest thing in the world to do. Like bare bones fire. I can do yeah. it. But like, I think about it, it's so it's just so funny. You said make a fire like I had every intention on or it's so easy for us as hunters. I'm going to give a little bit of an aside, but it's so easy for us as as hunters and fishermen and stuff like that to like kind of take things like that for granted. You get a certain level of, of experience and and you pretty much know how to exist and sustain outside. And you have tools that make being outside a little easier to, to endure. I mean, you know, you, you, you learn to appreciate that like rough and tumble is not necessarily always productive. So you, you, but what happens is you start to forget that making a fire is hard. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> or staying warm. Like yeah. staying warm is something I still struggle with. And I think I mm-hmm. will struggle with forever. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> The reason, yeah, I, where I was going with that is I, with my focus in wildlife biology and with connections that I made, I learned how to explore the outdoors and be mm-hmm. more engaged. Mm-hmm. And someone taught me how to hunt. And I am forever grateful for his, his gift to me and inviting me to the dinner table with him and his family. Um, but I didn't have that opportunity. I didn't have a program like Academics of Field Mm -hmm. when I was in school either. I searched for like a year and a half actively saying, hey, will you take me hunting? Hey, will you take me hunting? Same. Yep. When did, uh, did you grow up hunting? No. So I, I grew up in Atlanta. The dog portion came because I I used to have pit bulls like in my later teens in college and stuff like that. And they were cool. And I was getting my dogs out of Atlanta, but I grew up shooting squirrels in my shooting backyard squirrels. With my granddaddy, like there was like, there's a whole forest behind my granddaddy's house. Um, and it's actually, uh, state owned. Like it's actually somewhere that you should recreate, you know, and it's, it's awesome. another green space that is not used correctly in the middle of Atlanta, um, in Oakland city. Well, we would go out fishing. I did do that as a kid. Um, creek fishing too um that's kind of where the tenkara piece comes in you know why i'm kind of still fascinated with that and really no i didn't grow up i wouldn't call that hunting and so and and shooting squirrels in the backyard i I still wouldn't call that hunting so (laughs) it was always cool where that came in for me though was in high school um i had some buddies that would just be gone for like a certain part of the year, this time of the year, right? They were gone hunting with their dads and stuff like that. And, and they would come back so hyped up and amped up. And I was just like, yo, that's really cool. But I didn't grow up in a hunting home. So that, that wasn't, that wasn't going to happen at the time. Yeah. Well, once I got, I went to Albany state and I would always see scenes and stuff like that and imagery of hunting. Like it's South Georgia. You're going to see it eventually. Um, and I, and I, I saw it, but I didn't think, I don't think I got it like what I was in at the time. And so it was, but I, I'd always still been fascinated with hunting I just, and I wanted to do it. Um, and so I got out of college and started teaching and that was, that gave me enough of, you know, a financial cushion to like actually take on hunting. Um, and it just grew and, and, and I've always been fascinated with dogs. 
and um and so bird dogs and meeting my mentor down in in thomasville like that whole thing just got me wrapped up into it so i found my way into hunting spent a lot of money doing it made a lot of mistakes doing it you know um and didn't embrace simplicity until much later i hear ya. i uh when i learned my mentor was very engaged mm-hmm. on guiding me through every step of the way because that's what i needed mm-hmm. but now that i'm you know an independent confident hunter when i'm taking other people out i frequently emphasize hey this is just one way to do it mm-hmm. There are a lot of ways to do it, and some ways are better than others. But if you forget one thing, it's okay. It's okay. You're still having fun. <laughs> You're still bringing home the meat, like uh-huh. you know. And so I had a I had an event a couple weeks ago, and I said, "You need a pocket knife, a bone <laughs> saw, and bags, baby. Yeah, That's yeah. it." Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Your, obviously your firearm, but and uh, you know, but that's the thing. You don't need much. You know, nope. you, 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 you have a way to, to, to consume game or take game and, you know, way to protect yourself and, and all of that. And just keep it simple. Like access to the outdoors should not be made any more complex than just getting in the, in the, in, in the car and going. Absolutely. A walk in the woods. Just, you know, take it there. So, you know, what I also want to get into, um, you know, as far as academics of field coordinators, like you guys have it set up to host multiple events, you know, throughout the semester, right? Yeah. So academics of field, the the way the way it works is Georgia Wildlife Federation as the NGO partner hires a student intern, ideally, at each university, so that that, that chapter coordinator can then recruit participants, recruit and hopefully student mentors or or coaches and plan out the hunts. So I, working for Georgia Wildlife Federation, oversee the three interns and they are expected to host three to four events. And I say that with quotations around them because an event is a series of events, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. it Each hunt includes an education night. Each hunt includes a shooting training. It includes the, the mentored hunt. And it also includes a culinary social, a dinner afterwards. And so each event, again, quote unquote, it can take two weeks to accomplish. And... um that can look different from program to program and where they hunt can look different from program to program. That's what's kind of cool about academics of field Mm -hmm. is that each program relies on the resources and the partners that are around them. And so some programs will do their squirrel hunt on public land. Some squirrel, some programs will do their hunt on private land and there are huge benefits to both options. Um, whether that's awareness and ease of repeating or whether or not that's increased access to opportunity and greater population densities. Mm -hmm. 
So there's, there's challenges that the students face. Uh, if they can't find enough student mentors, then that's when they call me and they call their academic advisor and they're like, hey, I could really use some additional support. And that's when we'll bring in other members of the community, whether that's maybe some alumni, maybe that's uh, a, a couple other faculty members, whether or not that's some state personnel, state wildlife agency personnel, or uh, George Wildlife Federation staff. Either way, we want to provide the support and hopefully a one-on-one -on -one ratio for our student participants so, they, they, so that they can have the best experience possible. Well, okay. So that leads me into the next part of academics of field. I think that's, how can we help you with that? Is, is it, it, with Minority Outdoor Alliance, I think that's one way, you know, having that additional support and, and saying, you know, if you can't find anybody, again, I am alumni, first of all, but then the other part of, of it is our organization can offer that type of support as well. Absolutely. And I will definitely be reaching out to you all for that particular uh, help. Yes. Um, but there's a couple of other ways, mm -hmm. one of which is I, I'm actually hiring uh, an individual to help me facilitate this expansion to the HBCU. So each HBCUs. So I'm going to do a little plug for myself. Yeah. Um, uh, it's going to be a full time position. Uh, I only have funding for one year right now, but I'm hoping to hire someone. And honestly, I'm looking for someone that is very familiar with um, barriers of your people of color. Mm -hmm. I am not a person of color, and I sometimes probably don't understand some of those barriers as well as someone um else who might be more familiar with that and that just has to do with my background mm -hmm. we all have different backgrounds so if anyone's interested in joining the team mm -hmm. the job posting is on the gwf website um and, and i'm hoping what? you'll put it in the show notes i was too. gonna i was just gonna say that if you um if you text it to me i'll take that link and put it in the show notes um you know or it it, it should be pretty easy to find on the website too though um, yeah, I, I already put it in your in your notes. Too, oh, you did. So. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, I got, I got you. You got me. You got me. As we continue into the episode, we want to thank our partners, Pheasants Forever, whose mission is to conserve pheasants, quail, and other wildlife through habitat improvements, public access, education, and conservation advocacy. Visit pheasantsforever.org to learn more about the Call of the Uplands National Campaign for Pheasants and Quail Forever. We also want to thank the S. Kent Rockwell Foundation, where together we can make a change. The S. Kent Rockwell Foundation is dedicated to working with others in order to continue to rehabilitate, preserve, and maintain our world's most precious natural environments and benefit societal and humanitarian needs. Visit skentrockwellfoundation.org to view wonderful examples of how the S. Kent Rockwell Foundation continues to work to help the world change for the better. We also want to thank and acknowledge our partners, 
at the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership who aim to guarantee all Americans quality places to hunt and fish. There can be no greater issue than that of conservation in this country. While in the political arena, Theodore Roosevelt succeeded in making conservation a top-tier national issue. Visit trcp.org to find out more about how they amplify partners' voices to advance America's legacy of conservation, habitat, and access. continue on how the Minority Outdoor Alliance can assist with this expansion to these HBCUs, I think that one issue a lot of um, minorities face is feeling like they're the only one out there Mm -hmm. and or not seeing themselves in that recreation, in that career. And that's one thing that I hope to address with this program Mm -hmm. is I want to bring in, I want to bring in guest speakers that are, you know, active hunters that are, hopefully I can find, you know, uh, a a biologist that associates um, as a a Black American, African American to share their journey and potentially the challenges that they overcame to inspire these students. Mm -hmm. You too can overcome these challenges Mm -hmm. and you too can find success and enjoyment in this outdoor recreation. Right. Well, we got you there. We have a lot of that. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) We have. um, And so what we, um, I would love to myself, but then also bring in, you know, our board members, you know, um, you know, folks in our community and, and folks that are, are in our audience base. Because one thing that I do think is important is representation and, and representation matters. And seeing people that are really proficient, you know, that that's a, again, you're talking about marketing, right? Like you're talking about something, you got to sell it. Well, let me show you what it's like for somebody that's fully invested themselves into the outdoors, into the active outdoors and tradition. And, and it's this much larger thing that we we're, we're, we're building and, and uh, you know, upholding. It's not just, you know, it's, it's so funny. My wife, we went out and she had, she didn't really, and she'll tell you, she, she is a co-host to this show, but my wife, she went, we, went out and I took her out for the first time quail hunting and she had no idea what it was like. You know, this was years ago. And she just told me, she was like, this is the most beautiful thing I've, I've, I've seen. Like, I mean, the light was coming through the woods and it's just this, and it was so easy to get to, Yep. you know, and we have to educate folks in, in our communities that like, look, you have access to it and it's actually not far away. You know, the, it is attainable. It is very attainable there. Dude, there is wh- where we met was one of the Georgia wildlife Federation properties. I cannot remember the name of it, but that was what 45 minutes outside of Atlanta. Yeah. The, the Alcove conservation center yeah. is in Covington just outside of Atlanta. Yeah. Like super easy to get to. 
Yeah, and you didn't even get a chance to walk around and explore it, did you? I didn't. I didn't. I saw like a piece of it coming in. Um, and of course looked on my, my Onyx maps and I looked yep. at the property and stuff like that. But um no, I didn't get a chance to see the whole thing. And I want to. Um uh, Mike Worley, who is super dope. Oh <laughs> CEO, yeah. CEO. The best. Mr. CEO. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um and he had a really good podcast, uh, by the way, with what was that? The um National Wildlife Federation podcast? Yeah, their their outdoors mm-hmm. channel. Yeah. Yes. He, he did a, have a phenomenal podcast. He I had listened a good to one there. Um, but no, Mike invited me there and uh he told me he was like, Look, you know, you know, the Georgia Wildlife Federation wants people to come and use these places and, and see these land like that's what it's there for. Yes. And so one big thing that I'm also hearing is that like you guys want more minority participation on public land, on Georgia public lands, because they, as long as you pay your taxes, <laughs> it's just as much yours as anybody else's. Well, you know that that is a uh, a complicated, complicated system. Yeah, and you know, I think it's it's worth noting that public public lands are still owned, they're still managed Mm -hmm. by different organizations. And state lands, for example, Mm -hmm. aren't paid for from taxes, which is crazy. The majority of your state lands are paid for through your hunting and your fishing licenses. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, whereas a national forest, for example, Mm -hmm. would be paid for by taxes Taxes, because that's the federal um federal properties and so the reason one of the great reasons that we want more engagement Mm -hmm. on these properties and from more more diverse communities is because we know that everyone values these properties Mm -hmm. but we also need everyone's help to care for these properties and to oversee them to um, provide the maintenance and the management and the oversight. We need help affording these properties. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the reasons it's my, one of my goals to increase participation in these activities right. is to, cons- to ensure that conservation funding is um, reliable, mm-hmm. sustained mm-hmm. through time. There's been a decrease in participation in hunting, fishing, and shooting sports Mm -hmm. since about the 1980s. And if trends continue, and when the majority of hunters age out, which will occur within the next 10 years, we will lose approximately a third of our funding revenue. So R3 really was initiated across the country to get ahead of this potential deficit mm-hmm. that can occur when individuals age out of the activity within the next 10, 15 years. Right. Um, the conservation funding model for the United States is very complex and needs additional support. And we need to find ways for everyone to contribute to these wild spaces, whether that's a public lands pass or 
Um, you know, do we find a way that other recreationists that enjoy these wild spaces can also contribute mm-hmm. to the lands that they're accessing? There's a lot of different ways, and I don't think anything needs to be taken off the table because the ultimate goal is to ensure that these lands are well taken care of and are available for everyone through right. time. Right. I agree. Um, so let me ask you this then. Have you noticed any challenges, you know, to, to integrating, you know, programs like this into HBCUs? And have you had any pushback for it? I mean, to people that otherwise didn't grow up doing this? And, and have you had any challenges articulating, you know, exactly what you said? We need more support. We have received outstanding feedback from any of the universities that we approach. The only challenges that we face is that NGOs, government, academia, education, it's all understaffed and underfunded. And (laughs) I know you can relate. (laughs) Oh, that hit home. Okay. (laughs) That hit home. (laughs) Yeah. So that's our biggest challenge is mm-hmm. we, we, we want this program, but sometimes hands are tied and it's just not in capacity for mm-hmm. HBCUs or other universities in general to take on this additional program. So, but is, but do you think that once we get an academics of field program in a school like Albany State or Fort Valley, and people see that the model works, do you think it's something that could then become a, a, a pipeline to generate more dollars and, 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 you know, revenue and support and things like that? Is it a thing that you, it's just got to be proven that it can be done? You know, it, it has so much potential mm-hmm. and the program, the model, I think it's solid. Mm -hmm. We, a part of this expansion to the other states and part of this expansion to the HBCUs is to test the model, Mm -hmm. to refine it, to make sure that we find the tips and the tricks to create an effective and efficient program. Mm -hmm. And there, there are models out there, and some of our efforts are based off of science and the outdoor recreation adoption model. And I'm hoping that by having so many different programs in these expansions, we can figure out the best way to do it. And we are intending to generate a practitioner's toolkit at the end of this academic year to be released in probably summer of 2022, fall of 2022, so that other universities can take the model and they can replicate it. And there will still always be challenges Mm -hmm. because each program is different. Um, But I think that it is a program that allows for heavy, strong discovery, which is appealing to your college students. And the the science also describes individuals in that age group as uh, low hanging fruit is yeah. the uh, <laughs> short way to say that um, because they have high rates of adoption yeah. of taking on the activity throughout mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, maybe this can make a difference. Um, but it would have to be on a large scale to really move the needle. You know, we're talking about millions yeah. um, and thousands of people needed to restore the strength of the of the original conservation funding model. Mm-hmm. And yeah. in today's age, I don't know if the resources can handle that volume. Mm-hmm. Um, the more hunters we have, the better our wildlife populations do because right. there's more funding for them. Right. Um, but again, it just kind of goes back to, we don't know what'll happen. I don't know how effective this program will be until it's five, 10 years down the road. Mm-hmm. And I can look back and I can take those individuals that participated and I can see, okay, did I create a new hunter that is confident and comfortable and continue this on their own? Right. Well, I would, I, I definitely think that's something I would like to keep up with. I mean, I, for obvious reasons, um, just to see the growth, because I, I, I think it would be, there's going to be significant growth. And I, th- I think this generation of, you know, college kids are, are very, very engaged anyway. They have an opinion. Um, you know, the times nowadays, man, like these kids are growing up seeing a lot. And yeah. they're, and they're they're witnessing change on a dynamic a dynamic and very 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 swift pace. Yes. You know, and I'm hoping that with the efforts that that you're putting together, like the it it will affect you know college kids, and they will then find better and more efficient solutions if we just go ahead and get the needle moving. Agreed, and I think that what makes a big difference and an important first step is creating interest Mm -hmm. and and appreciation for the resources Mm -hmm. and for conservation because no one is going to pay to support something that doesn't mean something to them that doesn't isn't pertinent to their life and so that's where a lot of efforts come into increasing awareness and increasing understanding of the land and how it is public land and how it can be your your everything like the outdoors that's that's my chapel that's my medicine that's my happy place mm-hmm. um and i think that a lot of people can relate to that absolutely and some people can relate to it but they don't know that they can relate to it and so academics of field, it is kind of a discovery program. Yeah. We might not have the greatest return, um, at the greatest conversion rate of new hunters, but I bet you we have a really amazing conversion rate of people that now understand and appreciate mm-hmm. the system. Well, you're, you're and, exactly. There you go. That's right on the money. I mean, you are, your understanding is the big piece about it. And I'm so sorry to cut you off on your life. <laughs> I just got really excited because you said you're what I was so thinking. Good. Yeah. Um, you're so good. I think I don't remember what I was gonna say, but yeah. It, that's it. It. it it it's one thing in our communities, like during our minority outdoor alliance festival, um, you know, it was it was really fun. A lot of people had a really good time. I mean, 
resounding uh, success. And and we got to get you guys there next year, by the way. Put it, tell me the date right, right. away. <laughs> I will. I'll put it on the calendar. I got you. I got you. So we'll, we'll do that. We'll, and, you know, the thing that I heard the most that really kind of shocked me was so many folks that were here, you know, black folks, Hispanic, you know, Middle Eastern, there was not a consistent answer to understanding what conservation is and where, you know, your, 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 your hunting license dollars and things like that are going. So not only do we have an issue in the community of folks not knowing where to go, but then we have another issue of, okay, what is this going towards? Why, why do I need to be outside outside of just, personal health and fulfillment like what is this doing to the landscape hunting is not just going out and shooting up a whole bunch of stuff no it this is this is going towards bettering the planet <laughs> absolutely you know, in so many ways mm-hmm. i think there no, are there are a lot of unexpected benefits mm-hmm. to hunting there are the personal gains the the mental health the the food but then there are the, the bigger pictures. And one of those is population management. Um, and to be frank with y'all, the human species eradicated a lot of predators. And now we've got a mess that we're having to clean up. Yeah. And we need to now act as that balance. Mm-hmm. We need to ensure that our deer populations don't get too high where they end up starving over the winter or uh, a population of a different species gets too high and they spread different diseases. And that's one of the, one of the benefits of hunting. And that's why our hunters and our anglers are the most powerful tool that a wildlife management agency has in their tool belt. Yep. I, (laughs) You know, it's so funny you talk about being behind, and I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole, but like, we do, we were, we were, the, we were charged, and I'm going to get super spiritual on you now. To it. We were charged as human beings to take care of this planet from the beginning. We have to be the ones, the stewards of that balance, like you said. You know, it, it, like, the wolf controversy is really something that I'm kind of looking after because I'm like, I don't have a problem hunting the wolf. Like, there's no problem there, but there just has to be regulation. There just has to be a system to manage, you know, our footprint and manage the wildlife populations that we do have out here. I mean, you can't have too much of one thing. It's got to be balanced. It does need to be balanced. And what's interesting, Darrell, is, you know, you right here said that that species in particular, that would be an animal that you could, you could harvest. Mm -hmm. Whereas I don't know if I personally could harvest that Mm -hmm. animal. Mm -hmm. And that's because everyone has a different relationship and everyone has their own code of ethics Mm -hmm. for how they hunt in the field right and um 
there's not a there's not a wrong in a right way. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a legal and an un- illegal right, way, right, right? Which is just like you said, it needs to be regulated. Um, but that's also something that we that I encourage in the academics of field program is accepting that everyone has their own methods mm-hmm. and their own perspectives, and acknowledging that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does. I know that was a sidetrack. No, it was. And but I'm again. I appreciate that. Like what we're trying to do is encourage, you know, intellect. That's what we're trying to do. And yes, like, and I have dogs, but like, I also know what wolf populations could do to my dogs out hunting if I was out there. And it happens, you know. And but I'm also again the one that's like there has to be limits there has to be regulate like things need to stay in balance they do need to stay in balance yeah but i have but but to that point like i've got no i have no interest in hunting like lions elephants and stuff like that like for me it's totally like hunting is absolutely an art for me but but i understand the kind of utility of it too Yep. And like managing a wolf population to me is a little different than, and I know it's not different actually. Conservation in, in, in Africa, they have their own programs. It's actually not different. But again, to your point, I don't, I just don't have an interest in doing it. Like I just don't, you, you know. know. I, I didn't have an interest for a long time. Really? Yep. Because I didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, with my work with the Georgia chapter of the Safari Club International, I've Mm -hmm. been able to learn a lot more about international hunting and how I, how it's an opportunity to engage in a different ecosystem and engage in different wildlife and different habitats. And frequently the animals that are being Mm -hmm. harvested are a risk to Mm -hmm. an indigenous tribe's livelihood or life you know just like you know what the wolves could do to your dogs Mm -hmm. i'm sure those oh they have the same yeah there's the same concern (laughs) exactly like those lions man that's scary well i Um, i i um you know i've met someone that's had that experience and like i said it's that that hunting in that regard i totally understand again it's it it goes back to it being very utilitarian yep you know um but i wouldn't like i just wouldn't i i wouldn't be the first person to sign up for like a trophy hunt or nothing like that i just personally wouldn't but mm-hmm. again is it an effort towards conservation yes absolutely yes i agree you know um and i think that's where we need to frame the you know Everybody has their own thing that they would or would not do in the woods, you know, or in the field. And, and that doesn't make any more or less of a a, a hunter. It's just, again, like you, like you said, the code of ethics, um, whatever that means to you. And that's the thing again, where we, we go back to a much larger point, diversity. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We've been talking about diversity this whole time in just various forms. Yes. You know, um, in having these conversations, you know, and, and, and you're from a completely different area, you know, of the country than I am. And 
you know, we have different experiences being outside. That's just the dope part about it, you know. Um, I agree. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I um I wanted to <laughs> make sure I didn't take you too far off the uh, off the rails because I could do that. I think I can too. Don't I fret. Can, I, I enjoy it. <laughs> so look, I want to talk about one last thing, and 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 this is that. Um, how important, because I, I got so many questions on this list and we're not going to be able to get to them all, uh, which means we just have more time to talk um, yes. in a later conversation about, you know, as we continue our partnership. Um, but my question is, uh, how important do you think integrating a DEI, diversity, equity and inclusion uh, curriculum for the outdoors into the academics of field program? You know, I really appreciate that question because it's a new question mm -hmm. that I hadn't thought about, you know, and it's so important to have partnerships mm -hmm. like this to bring more perspectives to the table and to improve our programs and our efforts and ensure that we are addressing all of the the concerns mm -hmm. that are needed. And so one way that we are trying to approach the HBCU expansion in a way where we are doing it thoughtfully mm -hmm. and doing it intentionally is by kind of having a listening phase mm -hmm. at the beginning of the expansion. And we have partnered with researchers at NC State who are going to help us collect some information, some data from students at these HBCUs so that we can ask them, hey, what do you want this program to look like? What barriers do you have that we need to help address, help you overcome? Mm -hmm. And so I'm excited for those conversations and I'm excited to see what we learn. Yeah. To get to your point more directly, though, about a, a DEI curriculum, I would enjoy sitting down with you a little bit more and um, talk about what that could look like yeah. and what it would, how it would improve the programs. Um, and for all participants, whether they're, you know, white or black or Hispanic mm -hmm. or Asian, um, I think the bottom line is we need to be conscious and we need to be considerate. Mm -hmm. And a DEI curriculum could help us encourage those principles. I think so. Well, and, that, and that's where I was going. So Ashley and I have have put together just strategies, man, and solutions to to bringing people, you know, together because everybody has their own story, their own in, their own out, like the the, the things that make them tick. And I just think understanding people's cultures, histories, and traditions, you know, as honestly and, and openly as possible, you know, and doing that one thing that you just said is is having to listen, everybody listen, listening to each other. Um, I think that's important. So, yes, <laughs> we 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 gonna have to have a sit down um, and and figure out, you know, how we can we can do that together. Um, between Georgia Wildlife Federation and Minority Outdoor Alliance. Well, Brianna, I can sit here and ask you so many different 
questions and I can I could literally take this for another three hours because it's it's literally solution building and, and we're building for the future. Absolutely. Um, but I'm not gonna do that to you. <laughs> <laughs> Next time. Like you said, we'll do this again. We'll do this again. Um, so number one, I we gotta get you out here hunting. But you know what, you know, how can folks get in contact with you and what would you like to leave the listeners? I think if in, individuals would like to contact me, um, you can email me. My email is bre at gwf.org. You can learn more about our programs on the gwf.org website. Um, there's a on the tab programs, academics, a field or R3 initiative. Those are the words you're going to be looking for. And I would love to engage with anyone on any of these concepts. And I suppose what I want to leave listeners with is that these conversations that we're having, engaging in getting more individuals outside from different backgrounds, different ethnicities and race, sometimes those conversations are challenging. And sometimes we may not say the right thing but I think what's important is to always recognize people's intentions mm -hmm. and um, the desire to give and the desire to share mm -hmm. and the desire to, to love. Yep. Okay, I got that's cushy. I'm that, sorry. That, that's what it's about, though. That's what it's about. And it's fine. <laughs> it you, is what it's about man you, you uh, took it there <laughs> i did i'm okay with it <laughs> um that's cool but that really is what it's about is is finding those common grounds and those spaces and and loving each other and for us it is about bringing the unlikely to the outdoors like i, I love saying that because that brings so it it's it's about bringing people in yeah, it's great. I love it too. So, okay. Well, Brianna Bashford, I think this is this is an an an, ep, a, an epic episode. <laughs> Agreed. Um, I really appreciate your time and uh, you know, we're going to keep working and and I also uh want to put that information, put you guys information up on our website um put the academics of field information up so people can get more um more information about it you know from mm -hmm. us as well so we'll get that up at you know uh after this podcast yeah we can absolutely do that um Darrell, thank you for everything that you and ashley do for the minority outdoor alliance and you do for for people and for the outdoors thank you so much well brianna i appreciate you and Guys, that's another episode of, of our Outside Podcast, and uh, we'll catch you in two weeks.